know, the Bible really is a unique book. It's a unique book in a lot of regards, but one reason in particular I find, and that is the fact that the Bible never skirts human suffering. It doesn't avoid it. It doesn't reason it away. It embraces it. As a matter of fact, Christianity might be the only religion where God himself suffers. And according to scripture, there are three motivating factors behind human suffering. Three reasons that human suffering exists at all. First, suffering we find in scripture manifests as a result, kind of universally, of God's judgment on all sin. Case in point, the Garden of Eden. None of us are living there as a result of Adam and Eve's sin. Thus, mankind fell into error and we're suffering the results of it. There are times where a nation turns from God. And though there are just people that live within that country, they still experience this universal judgment on all of sin. So we see sin as a manifestation of God's kind of universal judgment, our expulsion from Eden. We also see in scripture that suffering manifests as punishment for individual sin. You've probably experienced this, a storm of your own making, a real crummy set of circumstances that you made for yourself because you weren't obedient to God, because you fell into sin, because you rebelled, because you made a stupid choice, a stupid decision, and you suffered as a result. We see sin in scripture presented as a byproduct of our poor choices. Obviously, King David, described in scripture as a man after God's own heart, suffered, didn't he? He suffered not just the death of a newborn, but he suffered so much family turmoil. But he had no one to blame but himself, didn't he? Through his sin of adultery with Bathsheba, David created a pile of manure that he had to sit in. So we see that suffering exists, well, because of God's universal judgment. We also see it existing because we can be morons. But we also see that suffering manifests independent of our involvement. Sometimes suffering comes into our lives, not because of the universal judgment of sin, not because we did something stupid. Sometimes we suffer and it has nothing to do with us. We're purely a victim of our own circumstances. Case in point, the anguish of Job. And while the first two manifestations of suffering are what we might describe as simple cause and effect, which make their plight, at least on an intellectual level, easier to deal with, it's this third manifestation of suffering, this one independent of our involvement, we typically end up struggling and grappling with. Why? Well, the first two might be cause and effect, but the third often appears random and many times unfair. And such was the case with Paul and Silas here in Philippi. As we saw two weeks ago, for the high crime of faithfulness to God and a love of people, Luke records in verses 22 through 24 that the multitude rose up against them, the magistrates tore off their clothes, Paul and Silas are beaten with rods before they're thrown into prison having their feet fastened in the stocks. They did nothing wrong. They were simply obeying God. 
And we're also told that it was then during the midnight hour, as this bloodied and bruised Paul and Silas, these servants of God, are praying and singing hymns, without warning, an earthquake. So shook the prison that not only were all the doors flung open, but everyone's chains were loosed. And what occurs next is unexpected. While most of us would have seen a supernatural event, the earthquake, opening our door, removing our chains as maybe God's way of deliverance, you know, his way of providing a way of escape from suffering, this is not, as we saw last Sunday, how Paul viewed it. Because Paul and Silas had resisted the natural urge to see suffering as random and instead trusted that God had a plan and a purpose behind everything that they were experiencing, what did he and Silas do? While most of us would have been like, I'm out, escape, freedom, they decide to stay and remain in their cell. Now, though many of us could consider, and rightfully so, this decision to be somewhat ludicrous, we should point out that three incredible things happened as a direct result of them choosing to stay in their suffering. Three things that this morning we'll note will help you endure suffering. Not necessarily the the universal aspects of suffering or the ones of your own making, but this third, more difficult type, the one that seems random, the one that seems unfair, we'll see in our text, beginning with verse 27, that something happens because they chose to stay in their plight. We're told that the keeper of the prison following the earthquake, awaking from sleep, seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword, was about to kill himself. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm for we are all here. And he called for a light and he ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, washed their stripes, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when this Philippian jailer had brought them into his house, Luke says that he set food before them and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all of his household. Now the first thing we see as a direct result of their decision to stay in their cell is that suffering afforded Paul and Silas a greater opportunity for ministry. Don't forget why Paul and Silas are in Philippi to begin with. Acts 16 verse 9 tells us that Paul receives, while they're in Troas, a vision of a man from Macedonia. And this detail becomes interesting because at this juncture in Paul's ministry in Philippi, we haven't seen any men. Lydia, a woman from Thyatira, a seller of purple, Paul ministers to. The rest of the women that that were there at the riverside during the time of prayer. We see Paul ministering to a young girl, a demon-possessed girl. But at this point, Paul has not ministered at all to any men. But why was he in Philippi? He had seen a vision of a man of Macedonia crying out, begging that they come and help. You see, I'm convinced that following this earthquake, As Paul surveyed the scene, the scene unfolding right in front of him, the one, you know, that includes this Philippian jailer drawing his sword to kill himself, 
Paul was able in this moment to see a greater purpose behind his imprisonment. As a matter of fact, you might say, in this moment, a light bulb goes off. The man from Macedonia? It was the Philippian jailer. That's the man. This guy we were sent to help. He's right there. He's in front of us. You see, aside from the fact that he's the first recorded man that these missionaries minister to in Philippi, which is often a literary technique that Luke will use uh, to kind of point to the fact that this man could indeed have been the Macedonian, it seems clear from Paul's reaction, right? Paul yells out, do yourself no harm. His reaction to this request reveals that there's something much deeper happening in the life of this Philippian jailer we're unaware of, right? Do yourself no harm. He runs in, and what's the first thing he asks? What must I do to be saved? That doesn't happen like that. Something had been working in this man's heart beforehand, before this moment. So don't miss the implications. For if the mission to Philippi had been specifically to reach this Philippian jailer, the events of the last 12 hours take on a whole new level of purpose, don't they? Paul and Silas, they were arrested, falsely accused, thrown into jail. Why? (laughs) Because God wanted to get them in close proximity to the target. Then God allows their suffering. Why? Because this allowed Paul and Silas an opportunity to demonstrate in a very practical, real way the the supernatural power of God as they sing and as they pray in their cell during the midnight hour. God allowed the opportunity so that they could be a witness so that their light could shine in the midst of darkness, which then becomes all the more significant, right? As God would finally use the earthquake to create a desperate moment in the life of this jailer, perfect for the message of the gospel. These men were in the right place at the right time. God was behind it all. Don't miss it. The suffering that on the surface appeared to be random, that appeared to be unfair. They had done nothing wrong but obey God. In actuality, provided Paul and Silas the perfect opportunity and platform for ministry. The locale yielded by suffering. And the godly witness of Paul and Silas while suffering made them the perfect man to reach this jailer in the moment of his suffering. Isn't it true The best comforters are those who have at some point been comforted. I mean, doesn't the bridge between empathy and compassion fundamentally require a measure of personal experience? Like in a practical sense, doesn't a person gain a certain level of credibility when they're seeking to help you when you know they've endured the same thing you're currently experiencing? Isn't that, isn't that a reality? That often the woman who's, who's been cheated on is best equipped to help someone in the, in the middle of that type of betrayal? That the someone who's, who's maybe experienced the death of a loved one has a certain amount of equipping in that moment to help someone going through the same type of pain? That comforters must first be comforted? You see, No man in the muck solicits advice from a man perched in an ivory tower. 
And it's because this is such a practical truth that our present suffering, whatever you're going through, even if it appears on the surface to be random, maybe even unfair, you can trust that it does possess a future value and a redeeming purpose. That's a truth. That's a given. If you're going through something, whatever it is you're going through, you can rest in at least this basic knowledge that if I get through it, I am now equipped to help someone else get through the same thing. Suffering provides a person a greater capacity to minister to sufferers. 2 Corinthians 1, verses three through four, Paul would say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all tribulation. Why? That we may be able to comfort those who are in any type of trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. Though I can concede that this point, while important, doesn't necessarily alleviate one's present suffering. Never underestimate the profound significance the ability to find meaning and the moment of pain can have on one's ability to endure through pain. During the 19th and 20th century, as European societies grew more and more godless and secular, key thinkers sought to define the driving force of human nature apart from divine involvement. Frederick Nietzsche believed that it was the will to power that was the driving force behind human nature. Nietzsche taught that striving to reach one's highest potential in life through achievement, ambition, was the key to finding satisfaction, was the key to satisfying a basic biological and psychological need, the will to power. Sigmund Freud disagreed with Nietzsche, believing that instead the will to pleasure was the driving force behind human nature. Freud taught that the pursuit of pleasure, the avoidance of pain, these things were essential to satisfying this basic biological and psychological need. Soren Kierkegaard took a different approach, believing that it was the will to meaning that was the driving force behind human nature. He taught the importance of finding meaning in life as being the essential component to achieving biological or psychological satisfaction. Now, this is what's interesting. These three theories were put to the test in the most brutal of ways during World War II, when millions of Jews were forced into the barbaric conditions of the Nazi concentration camps. As a matter of fact, I, I, would, I would recommend, I wrote it down just so I didn't mess it up, I would recommend that you watch an HBO documentary that was recently released called Night Will Fall. It's old footage of some of the early uh, uh, Brits and Americans that made their way into the concentration camps. If, if you wanna see what type of evil existed, what, what kind of conditions, you know, it's one thing to watch like Schindler's List to see in, in, in somewhat of a fiction, fictional depiction on cinema of some of these barbaric things, but to actual see footage, it was, I watched this documentary last night and it was, it just made the hair on your neck stand up. It was so moving and so gripping, and by the way, extremely raw. And yet, a godless society, these three theories, 
They were put to the test. You see, as one might expect, when removed from the halls of academia and placed into the test tube of human suffering, the will to pleasure and the will to power, what Nietzsche and Freud surmised, proved to be completely inadequate as a motivator for human survival. In his famous 1946 book, Man's Search for Meaning, neurologist and psychiatrist Viktor Frankl weighed in on this debate by chronicling his experiences as a prisoner in Auschwitz. During his four years of incarceration, Frankl discovered that the only thing that aids a human being to endure human suffering was the quest to find meaning in every human experience. He based his, his beliefs off of Kierkegaard's will to meaning thesis, logotherapy, which is what came from his own experience, literally states that meaning is the most powerful motivating force within humanity. Throughout his experience, Frankel observed that it was the way in which a man, quote, accepts his fate and all the suffering it entails, the way in which he takes up his cross that gives him ample opportunity, even under the most difficult circumstances, to add deeper meaning to his life. In contrast, Viktor Frankl also noted that the greatest killer within the concentration camps was the singular acceptance that one's life no longer had any meaning. He observed that time and time again, when a person lost purpose in their suffering, they also lost the will to live. He wrote, the prisoners who had lost his faith in the future, his future was then doomed. With his loss of belief in the future, he was also lost his spiritual hold. He let himself decline, became subject to mental and physical decay. Usually this happened quite suddenly in the form of a crisis, the symptoms of which were familiar to the experienced camp inmate. We all feared this moment, not for ourselves, which would have been pointless, but for our friends. Usually it began with the prisoner refusing one morning to get dressed and wash, or to go out onto the parade grounds. No entries, no blows, no threats had any effect. He just lay there, hardly moving. If this crisis was brought about by an illness, he refused to be taken to the sick bay or to do anything to help himself. He simply gave up. Though your suffering might appear random, the key to endurance is to realize, like Paul and Silas had, that it isn't. Suffering is not random. As a matter of fact, this, this notion, it's a lie from the pit of hell. For if a person can believe that there is a sovereign God, they can trust that there is therefore a purpose behind all of the activity, activities he allows, even if it's difficult. In 2010, doctors told Chad Arnold, who was a 38-year-old with a wife and two kids. I think we have a picture we can put up. Doctors told Chad that he would need a liver transplant in order to survive. Almost immediately, his younger brother, Ryan, volunteered to donate 60% of his liver to his brother in what was described really as kind of a, a routine procedure. The family blog records how the post-op events unfolded. Friday, July 30th, 11.59 a.m. Ryan is doing well this morning. 
groggy from the medicine, but fairly comfortable. It's taken a while for it all to sink in. Chad is functioning with Ryan's liver. Almost doesn't seem real. Friday, July 30th, 11.45 p.m., about 12 hours later. Ryan was just moved out of the ICU and onto the transplant floor. So he's now just a few rooms down from Chad. Chad went on two walks today, up and down the hallway twice. Ryan has been pretty groggy today, but this is normal. Saturday, July 31st, 3.44 p.m. Today is day three. We have been told from the beginning that this is perhaps the most difficult day, especially for the donor. Things are improving this afternoon, but last night Ryan didn't sleep well and has been in quite a bit of pain. Sunday, August 1st, 10.18 a.m., the next day. Unfortunately, things took a turn for the worse last night. Ryan went code blue and was resuscitated. He is now in critical condition. We ask that you stand in faith and fight with us. Death can't have him. Monday, August 2nd, 11.04 p.m., Ryan went to be with Jesus this afternoon. Just four days after the surgery to save his brother's life, Ryan Arnold, who'd been the model of perfect health before this surgery, died from complications. He left behind a wife and three young children. Now, Chad, totally unaware of what had happened, was awoken by his father. His father came into the room and wiggled his toes like he had when he was a child. Chad opened his eyes and saw his father standing there. And his father, ever so gently, looking at his son, said, Chad, Ryan is dead, but we still serve a good God. Powerful. And yet even while Chad was able to maintain a godly perspective on the death of his brother, he was haunted by guilt. He struggled with purpose in his younger brother's death. <laughs> you can imagine like the knowledge that your life was made possible through your brother's death. That's a heavy thing to bear. As Chad recounts this experience and season, he said that it was not until a visiting coworker told him that his godly example had caused him to reassess his own life and it was in that moment a light bulb went off for Chad. For he came to the powerful realization that God could very possibly use even this experience to help others. The tragedy of Ryan's death, Chad understood, could be redeemed. God could use it. And after coming to terms with this new reality, he would write in his journal, journal entry titled 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Paul and Silas, they had suffered greatly. But because they hung around to minister to this Philippian jailer and to see him and his whole family come to a saving faith, I am sure these two men reached the conclusion that the heavenly gains outweighed their personal costs. This is what's tragic. What's tragic is that we live in a culture that is so consumed by luxury, so consumed by comfort, that we're more inclined to run from difficulty than endure it. 
Most of us, when faced with the prospects of discomfort, will seek the quickest and, and, le- and path of least resistance. Like if you think you're immune from this tendency, next time you face a tough situation, just listen to how you pray. Most of us, when storm clouds have arise, how do we pray? Lord, get me out of this. God, give me deliverance. If there's any way, I'd like to get out. Save me. This is unfair. We'll pray this way, don't we? And you know, it's not wrong to pray in such a way. Jesus prayed that way, didn't he? In the garden, knowing what he was facing, Jesus himself prayed, if it's your will, may this cup pass from me. It's only natural. No one wants to suffer. But here's the thing. When it's all said and done, are you willing to resign yourself to the reality that there are instances where suffering is actually God's perfect, perfect will for your life, for this season? Though you might pray, may your cup pass. Are you willing to also pray, but not my will be done, but your will be done? Imagine for a moment if Paul and Silas decided to escape as soon as the moment presented itself. Earthquake, doors open, chains fall off, boom, they're gone. The case can be made that they would have tarnished their witness. Seeking to escape might have, in some regards, in some ways, piled on to their own guilt, a sign of guilt. They could have tarnished their witness. There's no doubt the jailer would have killed himself. But here's the thing we often overlook, and this is what's most important. If Paul and Silas had bolted as soon as the opportunity presented itself, these men would have never known what God's purpose had been behind their suffering. It was because they chose to stay in their difficulty. And I think it's safe to say it was a result of their time and prayer that God had revealed the fact that they needed to stay there. But the fact that they stayed meant that their witness was further validated. The jailer and his household come to know Jesus as their savior. And Paul and Silas were able to rest in this reality. Their suffering had had a divine purpose. Sadly, when many of us jump at the first opportunity to get, to get out from under our uncomfortable situations, we may be robbing ourselves of the very opportunity to see how God planned to use these things to accomplish his purposes. What we don't often realize is that while I might enjoy the reprieve from whatever it is that's causing me pain, the long-term effects of suffering without ever being able to see the redeeming purpose behind this suffering may prove to be more detrimental. Think of it like this. If you jump off a treadmill, every time you're feeling a little bit of burn, I mean, not only would you fail to increase your stamina, but you would never experience the greater purpose behind the burning sensation to begin with. You see, choosing to endure through the pain and not prematurely quitting allows a person to not only experience growth or 
the removal of growth, but it allows you the opportunity to realize that there was a redeeming value behind that pain. No pain, no gain. But you'll never see the gain if you don't endure. John Corson, pastor of Applegate Christian Fellowship in Oregon, wonderful Bible teacher, better man. Won't go into the full story, but he has suffered. Not only the death of his wife, but he also experienced the death of a daughter. Car accidents both, separate times. John Corson has experienced pain. But he said this. He said, faith is developed through struggle. Faith says, I will do what the Lord says, even though it might mean a storm is headed my way. Even though there will be difficulties, obstacles, and challenges, even though it may be brutal and difficult, even though I must struggle, I will obey. Will you? So we see, because they choose to stay in their suffering, that they're given this opportunity of ministry. And therefore, they're able to see the purpose that God had behind all of the things that had unfolded. But secondly, we see because they stayed, that their ministry, while suffering, enabled healing from suffering. Did you notice that following the conversion of this Philippian jailer, something amazing takes place, something that wouldn't have happened if they had bolted? Luke tells us that this jailer takes Paul and Silas home. And then he cooks them a meal and feeds them. And then we're told he washed their stripes. He cleaned their wounds. He tended to their medical needs. Understand, the choice to remain in the pit and minister to the Philippian jailer, it proved to be the very way in which God practically ended up tending to their own physical wounds. Paul Arnstein, he's got a PhD at Massachusetts General Hospital. He co-authored an interesting study that found that when chronic pain sufferers help other people with the same ailment, they report feeling less discomfort. As a matter of fact, when asked to rate pain tolerance on a scale of, of zero to 10, after six months of volunteering, people's average pain ratings dropped from just above a six to below a four, about 40%. A study in the Journal of Social Science and Medicine agreed with this thesis, discovering that individuals living with multiple sclerosis, when they offer emotional support to other MS sufferers, something amazing happens. They're less prone to experience crippling bouts of doubt depression, anxiety that often comes with this disease. Here's the point. If you've suffered or are are presently in the midst of suffering, lending a hand to someone experiencing a similar pain not only gives your suffering meaning, not only provides it purpose, but it practically aids in a very tangible, real way in your healing process. If you're dealing with wounds from fill in the blank, the best way to find healing for that wound is to find someone else with the same wound and lend a hand to care for their needs, 
to get your eyes off of yourself and onto caring for someone else. Paul and Silas, they stay in the prison cell. God does an amazing thing. The jailer comes to faith. His whole household is saved. Yes, God, you had a plan. Yes, God, you had a purpose. Yes, there was, there was a point to all of this stuff that we went through, the beating and the humiliation of being stripped naked. But man, we got some grub. And that jailer took care of our, our needs. We were trying to minister to him. And in the process, what happened? He ministered to them. There's a third thing that we see as a result of them staying. And that is that in the end, the entire process brought glory to Jesus. It's important that we keep in mind one sobering reality. As is often the case when it comes to the nature of suffering, the events that unfolded that day could have easily been used by Satan to discourage Paul and Silas. Could have been used, worse yet, to destroy the life of this Philippian jailer. However, because Paul and Silas held to the promise that God works all things for the good, even suffering, not only was everyone involved in the story blessed, but Jesus was glorified in the process. Luke tells us at the end, what happens? This Philippian jailer rejoiced. Literally, he rejoiced exceedingly. I've found in my own life and by watching the lives of others that when a person comes to the understanding that their suffering has a redeeming and lasting purpose, there is no limit to that person's capacity to worship and praise God. Well, verse 35, when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers saying, let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. <laughs> I love it. Did you catch it? Even after the events of this night, the earthquake, going to the house, being fed, having their wounds taken care of. What happens? Paul and Silas leave the house of the Philippian jailer and go where? Right back to their prison cell. Like clearly they recognize that the earthquake was not to free them, but to create a ministry opportunity for the Philippian jailer. So when they're done, they've got a full belly. They're like, hey, it's time for us to go back to the cell. You sure? Yeah, totally. Well, I could put you in a different, no, same cell. Well, I, you know, I'd, yeah, put our hands right back where they were. Put our feet right back. Trust me, if God wants us out of this, he'll figure out a way. It blows my mind. As we'll see in the next few verses, Paul and Silas do this for a very particular reason. To maintain their innocence and ultimately defend their reputation. Let's read on. But Paul, he said to them, these magistrates have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans. They have thrown us into the prison. And now, do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Paul's a little feisty. Let them come and get us out themselves. See, Paul's concern was that while the magistrates had come to recognize their innocence, you know, 
that they were innocent of all of the things that had been levied against them. Releasing them secretly when they had been accused openly would do nothing to publicly set the record straight. See, Paul, I don't think totally concerned about his own reputation, but mainly concerned about what effects his reputation being tarnished might have on this young church there in Philippi. Paul wants a public acquittal. Set the record straight. (laughs) And to accomplish this, he does something sneaky. He plays a trump card. He lets it slip that he and Silas have been beaten and thrown into prison as uncondemned Romans. Now, this is important. For while the rights of most were trampled on throughout the Roman Empire, the rights of Roman citizens were no laughing matter. As citizens of Rome, Paul and Silas were guaranteed a trial with the right to appeal the verdict of the trial before any punishments would be levied, which means that the way that they had been treated would have had major repercussions for these magistrates if Paul decided to push the issue. So we're told that the officers, when they were told these words, when they told these words to the magistrates, they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and pleaded with them, brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison, entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. After getting what he wanted, this public acquittal, following their release from prison, Paul and Silas returned to the house of Lydia, which seems to be where this church, this infant church is staying, where they're meeting. We're told that they visit the brethren before departing. You want to talk about a diverse church? I mean, think about who now makes up this little church. You've got Lydia, who's a wealthy woman in her own right. From the city of Thyatira, she's a seller of purple to the royalty. Her whole household have also converted servants and the like. These other women that were by the riverside, probably also coming to saving faith. You've got a demon-possessed girl who's given her life to Jesus. She's probably nothing more than a little slave girl. So it's cool, you've got this little slave girl worshiping right next to this wealthy woman. Totally different social economic statuses. Not only that, you now have this Roman Philippian jailer this hardened man, and all of his household also attending this church. Quite a diverse group. I love it. It also seems likely, because we're told, did you notice it, that they departed, that Paul leaves behind Luke here in Philippi to be this young church's pastor. So you've got this diverse, crazy kaleidoscope of people coming from all different backgrounds and different places. The commonality is Jesus and the grace of God. And Luke is now their pastor. Now, before we transition onward, we should consider one question. I don't know if you think like I do, but you're gonna kind of go with me here for a moment. When I read through this text, something just I can't escape. If Paul has this trump card, right? I'm a Roman citizen. You can't do this to me without a trial, without a a verdict, without the right to appeal. And he plays it at this junk. Like, why in the world 
doesn't he play it earlier? Like if I've got the ace of spades and I need one more trick, I'm throwing that baby. Like why doesn't he play the card like before the beating or before they're thrown into prison, before they're treated with such contempt? Like why at this point, after the fact, when they're wanting to let him go, that he's like, oh yeah, by the way, I'm a Roman. What you've done is totally inappropriate. I'm convinced that knowing most of the people he was seeking to reach weren't Roman citizens and therefore didn't have the luxury of the same trump card, Paul, Paul willingly laid aside his Roman privilege desiring to practically model how to handle persecution. You know, one of the things that you'll come to admire about the Apostle Paul is that he never preached a sermon he wasn't willing to live himself. Like Paul rightly understood that teaching people what it looked like to rely on the grace of God when faced with suffering might be one thing, but practically illustrating that life this reliance on God's grace in the midst of suffering, showing them how to do it was much more powerful. Paul could teach them these things, but he chose instead to show them practically by surrendering himself to these circumstances. It's mind-boggling to me. Paul could have at any point in any of these plights of suffering thrown the card, but he didn't because not everybody could. Most of this new church in Philippi couldn't. Like, he chose to practically experience what everyone else would experience. I hope you realize in the moment of suffering that this is not given to us from a lofty perch. As a matter of fact, the reality is, is that God tells us these things, teaches us these things about human suffering, having suffered himself. Jesus was not immune to pain. Jesus was not given a pass from the, few, from the full human experience. Jesus What did he do? Jesus, we're told, willingly laid aside his heavenly citizenship to do what? To suffer. (laughs) Not only to make a way for our salvation, but according to Hebrews, to earn the right to be relied on in the midst of our suffering. Jesus, friend, is a credible comforter. Why? Because he's come down in the very muck you're in. And he's lived it. He's experienced it. He's endured it. Jesus is not telling us these things. The mountaintop. He's in the valley of despair with us. In his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, Timothy Keller wrote this. Christianity teaches that Contrary to fatalism, suffering is overwhelming. Contrary to Buddhism, suffering is real. Contrary to karma, suffering is often unfair. 
But contrary to secularism, suffering is meaningful. There is a purpose to it. And if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you could ever imagine. In conclusion, friends, if the life of Jesus, the life lived by Paul and Silas teaches us anything, it's that while suffering may be an inescapable part of what it means to be human, God can use your suffering in incredible ways. Never forget, the glories of the empty tomb would not exist if not for the sufferings of a bloody cross. And so, Father, with that heavy word,